Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Rich Day in Mind where I'm interviewing Russell Hughes. Russell and I discuss the real estate market post-COVID, what we can do to adjust to it, uh, what our theories and opinions are as far as what the market will do in the future. We also talk about how to get started in commercial real estate and how that arena is completely different. Uh, Russell began his commercial real estate career in 1998 in Los Angeles. For the past 18 years, he has worked with companies in the financial services, entertainment, advertising, and biotech industries, as well as Fortune 500 companies. So Russell is very well versed when it comes to uh, being doing big deals and being very comfortable while doing it. And the way I, he breaks it down, I think that you'll be comfortable as well to want to get started in commercial real estate. So another great episode of Rich State of Mind. Please enjoy and thank you for listening. Please visit our site at www.richstateofmind.com where we provide content on real estate, personal finances, and self-development. Share your story and information by posting a blog on our site so that the Rich State of Mind community continues to grow in knowledge. You can also follow our Instagram page at rich underscore state brand to find out about exclusive offers and discount promotions for our apparel. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast because it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other outlets. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And thank you for listening. Hey, Russell, thanks for taking the time this evening on this episode of Rich State of Mind podcast. If you could please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, my name is Russell Hughes. I uh, am the managing principal of Hughes Realty Advisors. We are uh, commercial real estate, full service commercial real estate consultants and brokers. Uh, We specialize in the middle market and uh, our tagline is we bring Fortune 100 experience to the middle market. And uh, I brought when I lived in Los Angeles and New York, I primarily represented Fortune 100 clients, and that gave me a, a huge uh, breadth of knowledge to bring to uh, my middle market clients so that they can hopefully take advantage of that expertise and really um, accelerate their growth. And so what got you started in real estate? You know, I was, I was a location scout for commercials and music videos in Los Angeles which led me to owning a company that represented properties as film locations. So I did that for a little while. Um, My business partner is now my cousin by marriage and he is a scumbag. Okay. And unfortunately he (laughs) reneged on almost everything that made the business viable. There were other companies that were doing it, but we had a different take on it. But unfortunately I needed him to get those introductions and it just didn't happen. The good news is he had some amazing people around him. And one day I went into one of their offices and said, hey, I'm thinking about getting into commercial real estate. What do you think? And Bruce said, "Um, it's a no brainer. You're doing it already. You just don't realize it. 
So luckily I had a good friend who was the COO of a very large, um, not a very large, a small boutique brokerage firm in town, but it was one of the powerhouses. Um, a guy named Jim Travers started it and Jim and John Cushman basically invented tenant representation only uh, commercial real estate brokerage. So I went to work for them and um, you know, honestly, it was one of those situations where I got thrown in the deep end because no one had the time to educate me. So I was literally told there's a phone, there's a computer, go do your job. I'm like, but, 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 and then within about six months of representing Shell Oil and KB Home nationally and a couple other firms, it dawned on me that the last, you know, the my prior experience as a location manager and scout was identical to what I was doing. It was just on a longer time horizon for different clients. Um, and luckily I, I learned probably the greatest gift I, I have in commercial real estate is creative problem solving. Cause I learned that from trying to find locations that weren't what we needed them to be, but could be converted into what we needed them. Like we had a, uh, we were shooting an Exxon mobile commercial mm-hmm. and we needed a oil platform. Well, how the heck do you get an oil platform on land? I mean, you can do it with CGI, but it, it, it doesn't look right. So there is a power plant in Manhattan Beach, right on the beach. <clears throat> you know where it is. Yep. And we actually shot out towards the ocean and we're up on the third floor. And so we had all the infrastructure around us that looked exactly like an oil rig. And because all you could see was the ocean out to the horizon, it worked perfectly. So... That experience taught me how to create a problem solve for shell oils and for KB homes and to really bring creative solutions to some seriously complex problems with multi-million dollar price tags associated with them. Uh, So I have a question. You mentioned about owning uh, properties that uh, the entertainment industry would rent out in order to shoot their, you know, whatever they needed to shoot. So how would somebody get into that? Like, maybe they need a, are they, what type of, uh, I guess, criteria are you trying to meet when you say, hey, I want to get into this type of niche uh, where I am, uh, I look pretty much, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, where entertainment industries would look for this type of type, uh, type of house, you know, or house or mm-hmm. landmark. How do you know this is what the entertainment industry is looking for when you purchase it? Well, I actually, I was representing um, properties that other people owned, but like there was, there was always the high-end house. I mean, the high-end Malibu houses were always in, in, in demand. But what I was looking for was I was looking for more of the commercial properties that were not so well represented. And there's people like me, my, my former self, which is, are called location scouts, and they go out and find the location. So for instance, Nakatomi Plaza in, in uh, Die Hard is a, is a building in Century City. It was right around the corner from my old office. Um, we, we still call it Nakatomi Plaza, by the way. It doesn't matter that it has a totally different name. It's Nakatomi Plaza. Um, so <clears throat> you're gonna need X, Y, and Z. So we take pictures of everything. And it's not unlike uh, marketing your property for sale on like a Redfin or a Zillow right now is you are 
basically creating an experience. But with location scouts, it's not necessarily what's presented, but what it could be. Okay. Um, so there are certain things that are always in demand. Uh, and then there are certain things that are niche. Um, but the commercial, commercial real estate space was always in demand and was very poorly represented in most companies that did represent properties as film locations. And so what you, you started in LA uh, doing mm-hmm. this and then what tra- made you transition uh, to eventually Las Vegas? Was it? No, uh, Charlotte. 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 I did, a, I did a big deal in Vegas when I first moved here. I did the Zappos.com headquarters deal. Um, structured that for the developer. I actually worked for the developer for the first time. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, we moved, we moved to New York for a year. I had a four-hour daily commute into my office in Midtown from way out on Long Island. We moved back to LA. <clears throat> Once our daughter was born, we're like, we can't stay here. We mm-hmm. just can't stay here. It takes a million dollars a year to live here. <laughs> you know, I've got big clients. You know, I'm on the board of governors of Cedar Sinai Medical Center. You know, it's doable. Yeah. But it's going to take every moment of every day. Mm-hmm. And we would rather live. We'd rather live. So we moved to Charlotte in 2010. Well, in 2010, everybody was in limbo. The market was horrible. I had come off a year where I did one deal in 12 months living with all the bills that come with living in Los Angeles. I mean, our tax bill alone was 16 grand. Yeah. So thank God it was for Netflix. It was their Southern California headquarters. Um, so that paid the bills. And then when we moved to Charlotte, I had a big accounting firm deal that was being completed and the Zappos.com uh, headquarters deal, which kind of paid for the transition. But everybody's in limbo. So I went ahead and started my own firm. I'd been doing this for quite a long time at that point at a pretty high level. So I'm just like, you know, and I'm just going to go ahead and start my own firm. So I did. So I started Hughes Realty Advisors in 2010. And we're still alive in 2021, which apparently 90% of all businesses closed in their first 10 years. So we got over that hurdle. Yeah, you did. Um, and it's a, it's been it's been a wild ride. I mean, it's it hasn't been easy. It's been up and down my cash flow kind of looks like an ekg it's like you know just <laughs> like this so i've been trying to uh do more of the middle market consulting um so you know when people you know between 20 million and 200 million in revenue there's this gap where the real estate associated with a commercial venture gets complex enough that it should no longer be handled by the CFO or the COO or whoever's handling it because they're going to do it part-time. But they don't have the ability to hire a director of real estate. And so I'm trying to fill in those gaps as well. They don't have the ability because of the time or they or because of uh, just the, the money. money need to pay them? Yeah, just the money. And um, so I'm trying to, you know, it, it helps smooth out my, my EKG cash flow, but also fills in the gap for them so that they've got a professional who can hopefully save them money and, and make it worth their while. And it, it provides stability. So I understand your, mm-hmm. your, your, your strategy when you do that. Uh, what does it take to uh, build a firm from scratch? I mean, you went all the way to the East Coast. Yep. Um, did you already have anybody. point of contacts? Didn't know anybody. Met one of the biggest developers out here. He was a friend. He asked me to represent his, um, help him 
lease his uh, portfolio, which I did. I actually trained up his brother to, to do that. But then I went back to tenant rep. Um, I partnered up with a local guy and we actually represented one of the largest engineering firms for, for years, uh, SNME, uh, as they were growing. Um, so they came out of the financial crisis with a lot. They were very conservative. They were growing. They were acquiring um, uh, competitors. So we did, we helped them out. We did a sale lease back of their headquarters in Charlotte. We did an early renewal of their headquarters up in Raleigh um, and then all the regional offices. So that, that really kept me busy between that Zappos and the, and the big accounting firm that kind of kept me afloat for the first couple of years. Um, and then I, um, the presidential campaign was going on at that time. And I actually went to high school with Ron Romney. So okay. I, I met a lot of people <clears throat> because of the Romney campaign. Um, so that helped. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's not, as we say in the South, it's not rocket surgery. It's, rocket um, surgery. <laughs> it's just, um, there's, I, I think it's Epictetus. I think it was Epictetus, uh, uh, in the Socratic method. He said, um, or maybe it's Marcus Aurelius, um, moderate effort consistently applied will produce amazing results. Okay. And that's all it is. That's all it is. It's just waking up every day unemployed because it doesn't matter how many deals you got going on. You're unemployed every damn day you wake up and you got two choices. You can strap it on and, and go to work or you can curl up in the fetal position and wonder why the hell you picked this profession. Um, so, and, and, and truthfully, there are days when I just, I do curl up in the fetal position and wonder why on earth I was, what I was thinking. <laughs> so I'm not going to pretend like every day is a good day. Yes, for sure. And so we, we all know about, we talked earlier about the housing bubble, right? And mm -hmm. mostly it's usually they're, they're talking about residential properties are usually affected because obviously it affects people that live in them and they could possibly be foreclosed upon and yada, yada, yada. Um, how has the, the real estate market, as far as how the, the homes have gone up, how has that affected the commercial uh, side of it? No, it's interesting because there's there's a corollary. There's this exodus out of major cities right now. And so it is, you know, so you've got the, the retail market, which is decimated. You've got the hotel market, which is decimated. You've got the multifamily market that was really questioning whether it was going to survive the experience. And yeah. obviously the foreclosure and... Um, and inability to evict people really caused some problems because certain people took advantage of that to stay afloat and continue to be good tenants. And other people just took advantage of it. Unfortunately, yes. And I, I went through that myself. Uh, when it came to the, the, the rent moratoriums, uh, I understand, I, I believe in a landlord always having their um, backup funds, right? Always saving mm -hmm. up for repair, CapEx and uh, vacancy. Uh, but to ask a landlord to have maybe 12 months worth or over 12 months worth of reserves, that's a lot. And especially if you just got into the real estate investing game, yeah. uh, that is very a lot. And unfortunately, yes, a lot of land, uh, not landlords, a lot of tenants really took advantage. About 34 million that are questionable 
as to whether they really went through a hard time or they took advantage. You know, you could pick out out of the 34 million, we'll say one third maybe mm -hmm. are taking advantage and the other 20 million are actually going through something. Uh, and it, co it caused, on the residential side, it caused us to have a lot of critical thinking and to get creative on how to still make sure the mortgage was paid for and the cash flow kept coming. Uh, and that's when I started uh, having my tenants apply for rental, rental assistance programs. Mm -hmm. I started getting real personable and knowing their situation. Like, hey, look, let's make sure we communicate. And because uh, I don't want to automatically assume you're just trying to be a bad tenant. Are you going to do something? You know, right. Or maybe you're not because I see that you have your house is fully furnished and it looks really nice in here. But the rest <laughs> <of> the <laughs> it's funny how that works, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Your, your BS meter tends to get real acute when you uh, when you're being told <laughs> that they can't afford something and you're like, huh. It's weird because that looks brand new. Yeah, I don't remember um, that TV there. Yeah. It's one of the hardest things about commercial real estate. Residential real estate, people intuitively seem to associate with individuals, even though that's not even the case anymore. You got BlackRock and you got other companies out there that are, that are talking a big game about ESG, but really they're just buying up swaths of, of residential single family homes and in my opinion, turning people back into serfs. Um, their goal is to turn everybody into a renter class. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, that's just one man's opinion, but you know, whatever. Um, okay. The commercial side, there is a disconnect between the Black Rocks, the big REITs, and the U's. The people who have a triplex and a duplex or one building or two buildings, but they're in this tertiary market or a building that their family has owned for 60 years. And so their basis is, is negligible. And there's like this idea that everyone in commercial real estate is, is Daddy Warbucks and is, is rolling in it and can somehow absorb this massive financial blow better yeah. than their tenants can. Yeah. And it's just total fallacy. I mean, it's just BS. But um, so I'm hope it's still going on. I'm hoping that they're finally the court cases are kind of winding their way through. It is a great lesson if you can survive it. Yes, it is an amazing lesson. When I got into commercial real estate, I was told flat out have six to 12 months salary on standby at all times, either in lines of credit or in cash on hand. Because this business is the greatest business you'll ever be in when it's great. And it's the worst business you'll ever be in when it sucks. And it doesn't stay either way very long. So, you know, enjoy it when it's great. and Don't worry about it when it sucks because it'll be great again. Um, and being a landlord right now is kind of the same way. It's like, oh, my God, I've, I've achieved my, my goal, my dreams. I'm sorry, what? You, you want people to not pay rent like how do you okay so you're going to talk to the bank and tell them I, I don't need to pay the mortgage right oh no no okay have you guys fully thought this through and the reality is they didn't because there's preconceived notions of what a commercial landlord is I don't know if they intended it to be punitive so that people could come in and buy things very cheaply. And we were talking about crypto earlier. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have my own personal it's, beliefs on that too. 
Yeah, I mean, it's but, funny how, you know, when the big boys, when Goldman Sachs wanted to get into crypto, all of a sudden it just dumped down to 28. Yeah, yeah exactly. Weird. Very interesting. And that, so, that, that was exactly my thoughts, too. Um, my, you know, if you want to say me, I'm paranoid or conspiracy theorist. Uh, my thought process, if I'm money hungry, greedy person and I have the influence to impact a, an economy and I want to be like BlackRock. Right. I want to monopolize the industry. How because <laughs> you don't have to be a rocket science to understand. Okay, moratorium for 16 months. I can I'll take the chance that these landlords do not have 16 months worth of reserves. Let's see who let's see who uh, makes it through this gladiator fight. And mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, they're going to foreclose. I'm going to buy it for pennies on the dollar. And I'm, that's my way in. And I've already got the banking relationships. I, it's not even going to hit the market. I'm not even going to have to compete for it. I'm going to do mass note sales with the, with banks. By the way, the word conspiracy theory, little known fact, word conspiracy theory was invented by the CAA back in the 60s when they didn't want people asking too many questions. So it is literally a word designed to make you look crazy. So, yeah, that's your conspiracy theory about conspiracy theories. No, I mean... If, <laughs> If a bunch of facts set up with a logical outcome that just happens to be run counter to what you're being told, it doesn't make the facts invalid. I agree. It probably makes what you're being told invalid. So, yeah, I think I think there's a Hoover vacuum size thing going on with Wall Street and, and Main Street and um. We were talking about GameStop earlier, and I hope something similar happens. I hope they overplay their hand. I hope they overextend, and I hope they get slapped down hard because nothing would make me happier than greedy people. There is a very big difference between capitalism and greed. Yes, but I I, it does get mixed up a lot, but yes. Yep. I think capitalism is awesome. I think capitalism has risen more people up out of poverty than any system in the history of mankind but its extreme version is greed and power. And when you start tilting the scales, when you start putting your thumb real hard on that scale so that not everyone can succeed equally, then I have problems with it. I, I, I concur. And um, I hope, so this has been interesting times, right? I, I, you don't know how to call it. You don't know what's going to happen. If you ask somebody a year ago, uh, they was like, it's going to be 2008 all over again. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we see the homes are going up in prices. <laughs> yep. So we're like, okay. But then we got these rent moratoriums. And so I never thought, so you always hear about how landlords are like, and I always say, be careful what you wish for. They'll say, oh, I can't wait for the next crash. So I could buy homes for cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, but but your, millions of families are affected when that happens. So it's not like, these homes, these there's millions of vacant homes, and then all of a sudden they will go down in prices. People are, you know, they have to get moved out. Um, so we ended up getting something we did not expect this time around, but it mm -hmm. left a lot of question marks because I got landlords now who can't pay their mortgages. Not really the people. The, a lot of the people are just doing forbearance forbearances. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but how are they going to pay their mortgage? You so that is going to be a very interesting. Thing. So you're going to magically get caught up on that? No. no. So some mortgage companies I've talked to, they they are willing to 
if you communicate, if you have been communicating with them right. since COVID, they will work with you. But there are also a lot that is like, and you've been gaining interest, interest with this forbearance as well. Uh, mm-hmm. They want their money on the spot, which I felt like was kind of a setup because I think they knew statistically based off, because your, your, your mortgage was based off of your, your income. And I right. know if I still got that data, I know based off your income, you're not going to come up with this money. Right. Well, and the equity, I mean, that's why I, I get a little paranoid because we've got a lot of, my wife is way more conservative than I am. So our LTV on our house right now, based on equity and loan is like 40%. And I'm thinking to myself, if God forbid ever happens, you're going to come at me first because I've got all this equity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's very interesting. It's, it's, you know, it's like we talked about copper before. And so in 2009, the banks got caught with a lack of special servicers. And so a lot of people were in their houses. They weren't paying for it. They were ripping copper out of the wall. They were ripping everything they could get their hands on. I kept wondering, I'm like, you know, and, and at the same time, commercial real estate was doing, commercial real estate came after uh, residential. And so the banks learned their lesson. And so they implemented what's called the extend and pretend. They basically extended their their the the time frame on their lease or on, excuse me on their mortgage so that it didn't reset while they couldn't pay it because at some point I ran the numbers every single building every single one of them in the United States was underwater anyone anything with a mortgage was underwater because between the the discount rate on rents the um, LTV being completely reset and the value of the property itself, every single property worldwide was underwater. And the banks apparently figured that out as well. So they reset everybody's mortgage and they extended it out and gave the economy time to recover and it worked, it worked like a charm. I couldn't understand why they wouldn't, not necessarily do that with the residential side, but flip the mortgage into a lease. And you're going to get a certain percentage of people that are going to destroy the house or they're going to squat. You know, it it does create other legal issues. But if you can flip the mortgage into a lease, you prevent so much upheaval. You prevent so much mental scarring, both on the parents, but especially on the kids. You will improve outcomes for the economy so much faster. You can put a potentially a, a, a repurchase option into the lease. There's a million different ways. Going back to what we originally discussed, you know, at the beginning of this, creative problem solving. But unfortunately, our legal system is not designed for creative problem solving. It's designed for risk mitigation. And I'm fearful that we're going to do this all over again, and we're not going to learn a lesson. And they're already picking winners and losers with this mortgage forbearance and this eviction moratoriums. So they've already picked the, who they, their side, but landlords are going to get slaughtered in the process. And then the people who can't afford to ride out the eviction moratoriums are just going to hoover everything up. Yeah, I mean, you have no choice. You know, you obviously you don't want to file bankruptcy, which will affect you for years to be able to buy another rental property. So take your losses, whether it's a five or ten thousand dollar loss, sell mm-hmm. the property and just save up to start a new. Hopefully, due to inflation, you'll come out with something, um, or at least break even. So you at least got that on you. 
but I want to ask you about the the Maurice companies converting the uh, the homeowners into a lease. So are mm -hmm. you saying is it? It sounds like they would have to forgive the loan and then make you a tenant and then maybe yeah. do a five year a five year uh because I guess no harm no file if I turn you into a tenant. You're still paying your mortgage in a sense, right. the, the equivalent. I'm still getting paid. Figure out how you want to do the interest, or I'll just take the straight up principal and yeah. then put you on a five you year plan. House, you know, it's effectively it's it's um, you know, I don't know if you heard the expression jingle mail. You no, no, I have jingle not. mail is okay. Jingle mail is where you are a bank or a special servicer and you get your mail in and it's got a set of keys in it. And it's, it was jokingly referred to as jingle mail. Okay. And it's basically deed in lieu of foreclosure is the legal um, description of what it is. And it's basically here are my keys. I'm walking away. Come after me if you want. Here's the house. I'm out. And it's deed of in lieu of foreclosure. So if you did deed in lieu of foreclosure, but you kept them on as tenants, you could eliminate the foreclosure on their credit report, potentially create an exit strategy down the road for the ownership aspect. You could still create a secondary market. People don't realize that mortgages are not held on banks' books. They're sold in the secondary market mm -hmm. uh, to a warehouse um, uh, line of credit. Um, you could set up a vehicle that was a, pretty much the identical so that the banks wouldn't have to hold ownership of the houses on their books. They could sell it to a servicer. Um, that would take a month max to set that up. But again there would be a certain percentage of litigation. And just like, you know, the pandemic created uh, five years worth of work for lawyers to define the word force majeure. Um, force majeure, for those who don't understand, is, is basically a force outside of your control. So was a global pandemic a force majeure? If it is, then it basically negates almost every lease in existence. Um, because there's almost always a force majeure clause. Um, unfortunately, if it negates the lease and it negates the lease, it's double-edged sword. So you got to be real careful with force majeure. It might have unintended consequences that you're not prepared for. But basically, the, the banking system, the mortgage system, and the legal system, and everything, no one was prepared for the scale of what happened. I remember trying to refi my house. I came out of a, we, our house in LA, we came out of a 7-1 in 2008. And I called up my bank at Citibank at the time. I said, hey, guys, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to do, do a 30-year locked. I was, gonna, mm -hmm. I was gonna roll into LIBOR um, float, which was actually gonna reduce my interest rate, but I was trying to do the right thing. They're like, sir, if you're not in, if, if you have, if you're paying your mortgage, we can't, we, we can't talk to you for like six months. And I'm like, let me see if I got this straight. I'm trying to be a responsible homeowner mm -hmm. and you can't, you don't have the time to talk to me. So um, the banks had no capacity to deal with what they were dealing with at all, which means that coming up with creative solutions really was outside of their realm of bandwidth and, and capabilities as well. 
And also, I don't know if they really wanted to do it because they had a ready yeah. buyer. BlackRock bought 1,600 units in Charlotte alone. I mean, I hate to keep picking on BlackRock. They certainly <laughs> weren't the only player in the, in the mix, but they were definitely one of the biggest. You gave me an idea. Um, so let's just say I was seller financing mm-hmm. and somebody was paying, the, you know, paying their mortgage to me and I provided them that exit strategy. That way they could still, the exit strategy you suggested, turn them back into a tenant and provide them a five, a five-year lease mm-hmm. uh, or to, to get back into it. That way I'm not kicking people on the street. Cause I know the biggest thing yeah. was, Hey, we don't want people, we don't want, we want people to be evicted. Uh, I think that was, that is a good way. And you know what? I think some people uh, that the ones that were able to evict their tenants due to X, Y, Z reasons uh, some, I think some were just un- uneducated and afraid because mm-hmm. they wanted to, they rather have the empty house and figure out another way to pay it. Then not only do you have somebody not paying the rent, but then they're also probably you know, doing damage to it or yep. just normal wear and tear. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's human nature to not want something to get away with something for nothing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would think that a, an interview process, like I'm planning on implementing what I'm describing, but I'm really struggling with it because most banks don't hold notes. So I'm going to have to figure out foreclosure sales and I'm going to have to get special servicers to try to get their heads wrapped around this plan. Or I'm going to have to go to people in pre-foreclosure and negotiate with the bank to buy the note to then convert in the lease. But I want to sit down with the owner first. And I want to know if they're someone that I want in that property or whether I just want to bounce them out and get someone else in there. But if they're a good person that just so happens to be struggling with circumstances that are beyond anyone's control, all of us, and thank God I'm blessed enough to have resources to be able to roll through this, but they're not, I would rather have them in the space. I'd rather have them in their house. I'd rather have them stable. I'd have rather have them thinking about how to re-engage in the economy to raise good kids. Because here's the thing, this is purely very selfish on my part. I got a 13-year-old daughter that's got to live in the world. And I want people as stable as possible. I want them emotionally as stable as possible. I want them raising their children and not worrying about being homeless and, and, and stuff like that. I want a stable world for my daughter to live in. So yeah, it's, it's selfish as hell for me, but I can also make money at it and then they can win. It's a win-win. I don't know when we stop playing win-win games. I don't know why we, when we stop start playing zero sum games, but yeah. Slide that last time back over the table, make it a win-win and, and let's focus on how to rebuild society. And that's where we go to when you said the difference between capitalism and greed. Mm-hmm. Because uh, there is, I think, especially with the real estate, there's, I think there's definitely a lot of times where both people can win, uh, but we have to t- kind of take ourselves, our, our selfish needs. So if I look at a deal and I say, all right, I'm going to get, you know, 10% ROI. Okay, that's good. Uh, but, you know, I think I can squeeze, th- squeeze 13, but then it affects the seller uh, in a way to where 
now it puts them in a bind. I don't want to do that. Uh, I don't feel like that's good business because that person may own other properties or, or know other people. And the last thing I want to do is try to get over on somebody. And then they're like, yo, don't deal with this guy uh, at all. He tries to try to get on you as much as possible. Cause there's offers that another investor will respect. Like I see an offer. I'm like, I, I respect that offer. I see what mm -hmm. they were trying to do. And then there's others where I'm just like, are you serious? I had a uh, case You're of waste my time. Yeah. Waste of my time. Two days ago, somebody put in an offer for, I asked for 342. No. Asked for 349. He put in 339 and he wants eleven thousand dollars at closing at, at his discretion to use at his discretion. So not even I still got to pay my closing costs. Right. Uh, and you want eleven thousand dollars in cash? What are, you, what are you doing? In this market? Yeah. <laughs> yes. No. But like going back to what we were talking about before the uh, before we before we hit the record button your circumstance with the, with the uh, evaporator coils and the HVAC system. Yes. If that seller had been totally maxed out, if they were up against their wall, their psychological wall, people forget that emotions are involved, even in commercial real estate. No one wants to feel like they're getting screwed. Because they weren't hard up against their wall, they could act in a magnanimous and I think appropriate way. But if you had gotten every single dime out of that deal, and then they had to come out of pocket for, for an evaporator coil on top of it? No. But because you weren't, you, you were trying to create a win-win situation, they're like, oh, I didn't know this. And this is something that's on me as a seller. So I'm going to fix this. Um, so it can really work in your, in your benefit. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all looking for deals. We're all scratching for deals. And if you can build a reputation as someone who's honest, straightforward, hard negotiator, but not an unfair negotiator, people will come to you. And the, the biggest com competition that we have right now is irrational exuberance and the market conditions that we can't control. I lost a $4 million deal. I had a, a client who was going to put $2 million down on a $4 million deal and wanted like 10 more days to close than this other buyer, but they were an all cash deal because they had California money. Mm -hmm. And compared to California money, North Carolina is cheap as hell. Yes. But we couldn't compete. So if you can get a situation where you don't ever have to compete against California money and someone comes to you and says, okay, what kind of deal do you think we could do? And I don't even want to market this for sale that's where you can really, really get value, provide value, build a reputation. I mean, you can make money off a reputation and people forget that part. Uh, when it comes to marketing to find a deal for commercial real estate, um, is it similar to how, you know, when I'm trying to find a deal, I'm sending out letters or, or postcards or, you know, business cards, uh, or you looking on LoopNet, or is it just I mean, deals are brought to your table? It's all of the above. I mean, I've got a lot of, I've got a network of people, which is going back to what I was just saying, who, for whatever reason, have done deals with me in the past. And they're like, wow, I'd like to do that again. I'm like, wow, I thought I beat the hell out of you. Um, so if you enjoy that experience, maybe we should have a different discussion. But no, I mean, I always joke, I've been doing this almost 23 years now in some form or fashion. So excuse my language. 
but I'm full of shit, but I don't lie. And there is a line and there is a very bright line between BSing and lying. And I never lie. And so people come to me and they're like, all right, what can we do here? And it's mostly off-market deals. Um, and because they know that I'm an honest you know, buyer or investor or have got people, they'll bring me stuff. Which is how that $4 million deal. I mean, I was talking to, you know, also the person who had that deal wanted, wanted to buy one of my properties that I was marketing for sale. So commercial real estate is a much smaller world than residential, much smaller. It is a, even in Los Angeles, we all knew each other. Everyone knew who they wanted to do business with and who they didn't. Um, Charlottesville, a secondary market that's growing. It's super small. Um, so we all know each other and that can be good or that can be bad. Yes. So yeah, sometimes you're just as simple as going on LoopNet or CoStar and, and looking what's out there. And these days it's really hard because the cap rate compression, uh, we talked about acronyms and, and not getting too deep. So cap rate, I don't, I can't remember what cap stands for, but a cap rate is basically the NOI, which is the net operating income, which is basically the gross cash flow, less expenses. And then the cap rate is usually anywhere from like 4% with industrial properties all the way up to maybe a 15% cap rate. It's basically a percentage of return. So you divide the, the net operating income by the cap rate and you get the price of a building. Um, so cap rate compression, I mean, there's, there are trillions of dollars chasing a very limited amount of deals. So I've really found between one and 5 million is where I'm getting my best bang for the buck. And that's where I've been doing deals. And we can still get, you know, eight caps, 8% return, um, which is just your initial return. It doesn't, it's not your IRR. It's not your annual increases. <clears throat> IRR is internal rate of return. It's a different calculation. Again, unfortunately, commercial real estate is a rabbit hole that's seemingly limitless and how deep you can get into it. Yeah, oh yeah, you got the, I mean, you could own a McDonald's building to mm -hmm. you can own a plaza. Uh, I have a question for you. So somebody, let's say I'm a residential um, investor like myself mm -hmm. and I want to get into the commercial uh, real estate world, what would you consider, based off your experience, would be a good way for somebody like a residential investor to transition over to commercial? Hire a commercial real estate broker. Do not, under any circumstances, hire a residential agent. <clears throat> We're called brokers. They're called agents. Um, the state of North Carolina calls us agents, all agents. We call ourselves brokers. With all due respect to residential agents, I've met some that are phenomenal. I've met some that are, I, I wouldn't let, you know, order my meal at McDonald's. Um, but the reality is commercial is a whole different animal. People are shocked that we don't have a separate licensing class for commercial. I'm licensed. I've been licensed in six States now. None of those have a separate commercial license. Um, commercial is just a very different animal. Uh, that said it's like multifamily 
is not so different from a single family house. So it's again, going back, going back to my Southern thing, it is not rocket surgery. It is just a different way of calculating things. Get someone who's not, who doesn't have an ego involved, get someone with a, a teacher's heart. Um, I think that's the best way to do it because, and, and be honest, be honest about it. Cause I, I've worked with some people that pretended like they knew what they were doing. <laughs> we know, we know if you're, if you're for real or not, don't pretend. And if you're not, if you're just looking for an education, buy us lunch. Chances are you'll get an education out of the deal, but pretending that you're the man when you clearly are not, will get you bounced out of my office pretty fast. Um, the other thing is, is maybe if you're in the very beginning stages, your broker might want to put up their commission if they like the kind of deal that you're going into. And then obviously you've got a partner. And that okay. could be a good thing or a bad thing. But then you are totally 100% aligned with that person. Yeah, um, you don't want to partner with bad people, whether they're your broker or not. But if they're, if they're good people, you might want to say, hey, listen, do you want in on this deal? You want to take your commission? Because really at the end of the money, before we get paid, it's effectively monopoly money. It's, it's an it, it's a input on a spreadsheet. It's not real. So you might wind up getting some investment money out of someone because they're like, oh, you know, it's a commission. It's not real to me. Yeah, I might as well just dump it in this deal and, and own a part of this of this building. This is okay. The other thing is, I build teams. I build teams, whether it's lawyers, construction managers, architects, uh, zoning um, consultants, um, accountants, uh, intermediaries for ten thirty ones. The thing I tell people is this, I like to build trust with people before we're engaged in the process because mm -hmm. there's only one thing I know for absolute certain. It's going to go sideways. At some point during this process, everything's going to come apart at the seams. It always does every single time. But what I tell them is we're going to put a team around you that's going to put Humpty Dumpty back together very quickly. And we're going to anticipate this. This isn't going to be anything that's going to like surprise us. We're anticipating that something weird's going to happen. It always does. So let's put the team together that can deal with that, that has expertise in dealing with these circumstances. So then when the inevitable happens, we're good to go. No big deal. I like that. And that's always been... Um... A question that I've, I've asked a few a few individuals that build their teams like okay how would you able how do you even know okay I need this guy and earlier when you said 1031 were you talking about 1031 exchanges correct yeah okay so okay. 1031 exchanges was probably one of the more most challenging things to do right now not because selling so 1031 exchange is part is the basically 1031 is the section of the code the IRS code that covers, you can sell a property and not pay taxes if you buy a like-kind property, but there are all sorts of rules. 
And one of the rules is you need to have an intermediary that holds the money. You never actually take possession of the money. Um, 1031 exchanges are very hard right now because finding the up leg, it's not the selling that's easy. It's this, this the buying part that's the hard part. Stressful, actually. It can be. Yes. Deal, very stressful. In 90 days. Oh, my God. You got yeah. a ticking clock over your head. And that's why I tell people, you've got to have the approach to 1031 that if it happens, great. And if it doesn't, I'll pay the taxes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you shot your shot. You know, you, you provided yourself the opportunity to yep. you know, not pay taxes and be able to... Uh, I'm, I'm assuming get into something bigger or maybe something mm -hmm. that cash flows better. Uh, yep. And if not, okay, you try, pay your taxes, and you can still make something out of the profits that you have. Yeah. But so many people get caught in this trap of, of um, panic. They, you know, you, the only leverage anyone has in any negotiation is the ability to walk away. And the second you can't walk away because you're panicked, because you're desperate. First of all, the people can smell it on you. We jokingly call it in, in real estate commission breath. When you need someone, you're so <laughs> oh desperate God. to, to get their breath. deal that you just, they can, they can smell it on you. Um, yeah, just walk away. It's the only leverage any of us have. No, I like that. I definitely like that. And because I had, I've had a couple of people come up here and hey, like, hey, man, if, if you like, you know, before we start recording or after, hey, you know, anybody needs some uh, needs a deal cause, or has a deal because I got like 20 days yeah. before this is up for me. And I was like, yeah, I'll let you know, man. But you're right. If you don't panic, you won't settle for a deal that you probably shouldn't have gotten and you're going to regret it and you're stuck with it. And then you're praying that it goes up in value so you can come out and not be underneath. Um, yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. You didn't pay taxes on something, but it cost you, you didn't, you didn't pay, you know, 18% capital gains and it cost you 23%. Wow. You're a genius. Um, yeah. Just don't never do anything in desperation. It's never going to turn out well. And you're right. I can tell when when I sit and I don't even have to talk to the uh, buyer or the seller, but I could tell based off of the negotiations and what they tell their real estate agent or what they put down as far as what they want as an offer. I could tell instantly what 50 to 60 percent of what their mindset is mm -hmm. or it will make me question other things rent you know rent rolls you don't want to show me the rent rolls you don't want to show me the, the the you know the water bill things like that tell me okay uh, x y and z is uh doesn't smell so right or why are you why are you selling this for i asked for 80 percent uh of what you know of your asking price and you say you know forget it i'll do 70 okay what's going on right oh yeah people it's it's so funny the Pregnant pause might be the greatest negotiating tool of all times. People hate silence. It freaks them out. Yeah. If you could just stop talking for 30 seconds, it doesn't need to be like forever. 30 seconds is plenty awkward for most people. They will start spilling their guts about everything they've done. It's like, uh, I, 
didn't really need to know you killed someone in Nevada in 68. I just wanted your freaking rent roll. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting if, if you can, I'm not great at it, but you know, the old axiom, you're given two ears and one mouth. So you should do one twice as much as the other. Yes. People are very good at revealing themselves. If you're willing to listen. Mm -hmm. Very quickly. Yeah. You're definitely, you're definitely right. Um, I never had the opportunity to sit down to a, a buyer or seller, like face to face, but I would love to just hear a backstory on, hey, you know, what got you into investing? Why are you selling? No, seriously, why are you selling? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because I'll even have, uh, it's funny, I'll even have tenants ask me because sometimes I stop by the property and uh, like, hey, um, you know, how come you're selling? You know, because they're trying to figure out well, what's wrong with the place. You know, right. not, nothing necessarily. I'm just moving on to something bigger. Uh, but it's got it, it gets people thinking or asking that question. What are, what are your intentions? Because nobody wants to feel screwed over, and people want to just think: is this or is this a win win? Or do yep. you have something? You know, is the foundation uh, built on quicksand and it's meant to last as long as it'll take to close? And then once I close, and all the problems start happening. You know, an answer for that that might, I don't know if it'll satisfy everyone, but, you know, this was part of the plan when I bought this place and I'm executing that plan. And it's just as simple as that. I like that. I like that. And most professional investors will really, will, will really understand that. It might not appease all the tenants, but professional investors will be like, all right, yeah, that makes sense. Especially now, I feel like, like, hey, look, I got, I got the, uh, the home has gone up fifty thousand dollars in the last two years. What do you want me to do? Yeah, you know, yeah. it's time to move on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, you got it. Crypto has taught me so many lessons, but one of the, you know, let the market come to you, which is applicable to real estate. But take your profits when they're there, and then don't get greedy on your buyback. Cause I can't count the number of times I'll be like, uh, you know, like Ada will be up to like two bucks. I'm like, sweet sell. And I'm like, I'm going to buy back in at a buck 65 and it never gets down there. And then it goes back up to like two fifteen. but it got down to a buck 75. Yeah. And if I had just not been greedy and just taken my 15% off the table, then I'd be up 25%. Yeah. Take your middle. I was like, yeah. 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 Take, a know, take, your, take your money, walk away, be happy. I agree. And so you, you are definitely a, a man that has been very successful, uh, but humble at the same time. So I definitely appreciate that. It makes you very relatable uh, to our audience, especially something as intimidating as commercial real estate. Uh, Cause automatically people think, Oh man, this big, this huge building or plaza, you know, one man or woman must have spent their 10 million dollars of their hard on money uh to buy it and they must be mega rich when it was a it was a, a collaboration of a lot of other things or maybe i did have the 10 million but i i built up to that point it wasn't just i was born with a silver spoon in my mouth uh and so what is your uh, big why as to why you do what you do why do you love doing what you do or as we like to call it your rich state of mind you know I have tried to get out of commercial real estate a million times. 
because it's not an easy lifestyle. You know, the, the cash flow is all over the map. I'm routinely answering emails at 11 o'clock at night. That said, you know, you mentioned humility. Humility has been a process. Humility has been a process of, of doing huge deals and being very proud of those, but realizing that at the end of the day, my daughters care that I did a hundred million dollar lease for Zappos. And she's more important to me than, than the accolades. <clears throat> I do what I do because I know how to do it. I'm good at it. And I can help people achieve their dreams. I can help people do what they want to do, build themselves up to be what they want to be. And I get paid good money to do it. I mean, it's, it's such a win-win. Um, so, and, and, and a lot of times I'll come across a deal that keeps me intellectually interested. So that's fun too. I love problem solving. So. I like that, man. Uh, I, I love critical thinking too. Like, oh, this is a problem that has to be solved. Let me see if I could figure this one out. Uh, yep. And it's great if I could figure it out and it makes, you know, it's set up to where everybody kind of wins, you know, a little good for the ego too. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad. I mean, it's fun. It's fun to pull something off that you didn't think could get pulled off. Exactly. Uh, but hey, Russell, I really appreciate your time, man. Uh, I love, like I told you before we even started, I love your opinion on its opinion based off of facts. Right. And you are you take your emotions out of it and you you're able to give a uh, a real analysis of what the economy is like, people's people's emotions and actions. Right. With generally what that means when I do X, Y and Z uh, and based off the situation and uh, very pragmatic. So I like I like that about you. And I think that uh, when it comes to business or real estate, when we're affecting people that, you know, may live in them or businesses, uh, you got to have a little bit of both. A little bit of compassion with you know the emotion but also take a step back okay what's really happening here so that mm -hmm. i can make assess the situation and really make a, gr a great or better decision um down the road one I, a hill that i can die on as my uh, one of my co-workers would say i think that is the number one thing uh the number one differentiator between uh residential and commercial real estate is residential is where you're going to live and subsequently, it is almost impossible to strip the emotions out of that decision. And commercial really should be more matter of fact. Look at the facts. Look at the realities on the ground. Don't get emotionally invested. It's hard. I mean, it's hard. But to the greatest extent possible, don't get emotionally invested and make a pragmatic business decision. And then if you can do good on top of that, then that's just the, the cherry. Yeah, yeah. I love it, man. I love it. This was awesome, man. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.